1: And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
2: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAR Step, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Mm. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 12 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, April the 22nd. First, I'll be talking to Victoria Madison, the founder of Australian sustainable fashion and beauty marketplace VictoryMax. Which has just launched their virtual fitting room in conjunction with technology company Reactive Reality. This free feature enables customers to create a virtual mannequin in their proportions in order to mix and match pieces to find an outfit that they love. And I'll be talking to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering about last week's unemployment figures. But now let's talk to Victoria Mattison. Victoria, tell us about Victory Max and uh, what you're doing with virtual fitting rooms. All
3: right, so I set up Victory Max originally back in 2019, the end of 2019, so really just before the world descended into COVID chaos. And the intention behind it was to really address the high number of returns in the fashion industry because from a sustainability point of view, there's just a tremendous amount of waste out there. So, for example, in Australia each year, the average person consumes 27 kilos of textiles 23 kilos of those wind up back in landfill each year so that's a significant impact on the environment. So Victory Max is really about pushing a more sustainable future for fashion and the virtual fitting room gives people the opportunity to try things on and see how they look without purchasing them almost by unaware really. That's probably the best way to describe it. So, I mean, for example, I'm 159 centimetres tall, so barely 5'3 in the old terms. If I'm going to buy a dress, I want to know how long it is on me. I want to be able to see, well, will I need to have it taken up, for example. So, the fitting room gives you the opportunity to put in your own measurements and overlay the garments and see how they're actually going to look. You can mix and match different pieces from different designers. And you're far more conscious about what you're actually purchasing before it lands in your mailbox.
2: How does a virtual fitting room work?
3: Ah, right. Yep. So the garment, so I've partnered with an Austrian company called Reactive Reality because they already had the technology underway. Now, there are a few companies around the world who've all invested millions of dollars into this sort of technology. And some of it's great, some of it's getting there but it's all certainly steps ahead from where we have been previously. And the way the reactive reality one works is we take a 3D image or a 2D image of the garment. So we photograph each item of clothing on what we call a ghost mannequin. Now that enables us to then view the image as though it's almost suspended in air. And then once we've got the measurements of that actual garment, there's, there's an algorithm in the back end I, (laughs) that's not really my, my area of expertise. I can't really go into that. Um, But basically it will then overlay on the person and show where it fits, where it might be too tight, where it might be too loose. And down the track we'll also be able to say, well, perhaps this size would, would be a better option.
2: So, but the fitting room is what the person goes into a space No, no, no.
3: So the person basically just has to put their own measurements in and we make a mannequin proportionate to to that.
2: So you create a mannequin based on the customer? Yes, yep. Right, okay. okay. Have you tried it out, Leon? (laughs) No,
3: no. (laughs) There's a male mannequin there too. (laughs) We haven't got any male clothing on Victory Max yet, but it will be coming.
2: It will be coming, indeed. That's a, that sounds fascinating. And so
3: how would that
2: reduce wastage of clothes?
3: Well, So currently, between, depending on the website, between 30 and 40% of online purchases get returned. And so I ran a bit of a focus group with some of my peers on this. And a lot of them said, oh, well, if we buy something online, we buy it in two or three different sizes, and then we send back the ones that don't fit. Now, the issue with that is then often those ones that don't fit. on some websites, they'll automatically go back into landfill because it is too difficult to put them back into the, into the chain to be resold because they'd have to be dry cleaned again and have to be relabeled and everything. So from that point of view, there's significant waste there. There's also the issue with shipping. That in itself has an impact on the environment with the constant, constant deliveries.
2: And in fact, most... Online purchases seem to be in the area of clothes these days.
3: Yes, yes, that's exactly right, yeah. I mean, Australia is the second largest consumer of textiles in the world, behind the US.
2: How long has uh, Victory Max been operating this uh, virtual fitting room? Still?
3: Um So the virtual fitting room's actually only been live for all the past two and a bit weeks. So we've wow. just been testing phase and yes, yes. <laughs> and we're still, it's still evolving so we're still adding, adding to it constantly.
2: And how are customers taking to it?
3: Um, they're very much in favour of the idea. But the funny thing is, it's actually a lot of my male friends are like, when, when can we use it? When can we use it? Hurry up and get some Australian suppliers on board for us because we want to try it out too. We don't want to go into a store. So that's been interesting. But no, they're, they're liking the ease of it. I mean, it takes all of, oh, probably less than a minute to set up a profile, and then it just gets saved on your own browser, so.
2: Right, and all, all the person has to do is put in their own.
3: Their own measurements, yeah. Their own measurements. Yes. Yep.
2: And so it's
3: taken off quite well. Yes, yes, yeah. We certainly had some positive feedback for it. So, yeah, we're... We're very excited about what comes next, though.
2: (laughs) Right, okay. Okay. And uh, you're focusing on Australian designers and brands?
3: Yes, yes. Now, the majority of them are actually made in Australia as well uh, because that ties in with our focus on increased sustainability um, and and ethical production because that's that's absolutely critical. We don't want anything that comes from, from a sweatshop overseas that where we're not sure how the labour's been treated, where we're not sure that people are getting their workplace entitlements. Right, okay. So we're very conscious of that as well.
2: Okay, that's, that's quite striking to so, see so you doing that. And, um, so what are the fashion brands on your platform?
3: Uh, so we've got Luna and Sun, and that's um, run by a lady called Tashani McManus out of Brisbane. And we've got um, Staley Swimwear. That's actually the one that's manufactured overseas. That's made in a family-run factory in Brazil. And It's beautiful swimwear, some really incredible pieces there. So very excited to have them on board. Uh, We've got Fitbird, which is more of an athletic leisure wear, sort of clothing, actually, that we were all wearing during lockdown when working from home. (laughs) And she's based out of Perth. And we've got a Stara collection, which is, really beautiful um, resort-style wear, and she's based out of Melbourne. And so I'm actually on – I did my first ever reel on Instagram last week wearing outfits from Astara Collection. So if you want a good laugh about some really bad um, bad dance moves on my part, then have a look at that.
2: <laughs> okay, okay, okay. okay. That, that's quite extraordinary. And, and so – and it's just you running it, is that right?
3: It is, yes, yes, that's right, yes.
2: And so – you're a sole operator?
3: Pretty much. I do have someone for business support but um, and a marketing agency that I get support with for the graphics. Right, okay. Yes, for the most part, yes.
2: And uh, I see you do my stuff. My
3: Australian operated.
2: Right, okay. And I see you do stuff, a lot, a lot of stuff on Instagram. Yes, yes. Right, okay. Okay, okay. And you do that, or you do all that by yourself, of course?
3: Yes, yes, I do, yes, yep.
2: So what are your plans?
3: Well, really, it's about expanding it. Um, so scaling up when the time comes. I've already been approached by four people wanting to invest. But for the time being, I I want to grow it myself first and see where I can take it. Uh, if it gets to the point down the track it needs to be scaled up, then, yep, then absolutely I'll look at doing what I need to there. Uh, but really, it, now it's about you know, bringing on some more Australian brands. Uh, so... After I finish talking to you today, I've got a um, handbag designer who's approached me about coming onto the platform as well. So I'll give her a call and and see whether that's a whether that's a good fit for both of us. And yeah, so so we'll just keep growing and hopefully getting the word out there and making people a bit more conscious about the fashion purchases they make.
2: So the ultimate goal is to build it so that eventually you'll have additions like handbags and uh and and for that matter male fashion
3: yes yes we've already got some jewelry we've got some beautiful pieces by um lily Frey out of noosa right okay and jackie Starr out of melbourne and then we've got some beauty products as well
2: well victoria that's all fascinating stuff and thank you very much for your time
3: Great. Thanks so
2: much, Leon. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. Callum, last week's unemployment figure has a three in front of it. It's 3.95%, although it's been rated as 4%. What's your view about that?
4: Well, the Australian lab market's doing pretty well. Um, at 3.95%, that's the lowest level in almost half a century. It just got a little bit below the pre-GFC uh, low of 3.98%. So it's a, it's a very strong outcome. The the labour market continues to strengthen from month to month, and the expectation is that we're going to continue to strengthen over the the course of 2022. Forward-looking measures of of labour market conditions, such as job vacancies and and job postings, uh, suggest that the Australian economy is creating a a lot of jobs, and those jobs need to be filled. And as they are filled, we're going to see employment continue to increase, and more than likely, the unemployment rate continue to decline.
2: Well, uh, yes, uh, well, they're talking about uh, 375
4: Yeah, that's the expectation from both uh, Treasury via the budget as well as the Reserve Bank of Australia. There is a possibility that those forecasts could potentially be upgraded a little bit. The RBA will update their forecasts in early May. Uh, The current unemployment rate is falling at a, at a faster rate than the RBA had initially anticipated. So that'll be interesting to see whether they upgrade those forecasts. Uh, but certainly we're, we're looking at an unemployment rate, you know, that we haven't seen for for several generations. So that's a, it's a really strong outcome for the Australian economy.
2: Right, okay, And uh, what about underemployment?
4: Well, underemployment has improved as well. So it's down to 6.3%, which is the lowest we've seen since the the GFC started back in in 2008. It was hovering near the 8% range before the pandemic began. So what's happened during this jobs recovery that we have experienced is that Australians are not only finding jobs, but they're increasingly finding the hours that they're looking for. So we have seen very strong growth in full-time employment over the past year. Year. It's increased by around four hundred thousand people, uh, which means that the number of people out there who want more hours has declined quite significantly so it's always important to look at both unemployment and underemployment when we assess labour market conditions and and right now both those measures are heading in the right direction which means that the Australian economy really is as tight as we have seen um, since at least 2008 but realistically for for several generations and
2: with full-time employment increasing by 400,000 that's quite impressive
4: how does that break down over a month? Yeah, so that's over the past year, um, up 20,500 in the in the month of March, just over 400,000 over the, the course of the past year. Um, by comparison, part-time employment fell a little bit in March, down uh, 2,700, and it's actually declined over the past year by about 65,000 people. Now, what this basically means is that because the economy is creating so many jobs and because there are so many opportunities out there, we're seeing people switch from being employed part time, maybe working 15, 20 hours a week, to actually working more full time schedules, which is a you know a 35 hour week or, or more. So that's been a, a really bright spot I think for the recovery thus far. It's it's one thing to create jobs, but it's more important that we're actually creating you know the right types of jobs that that meet the needs of Australian workers.
2: Unemployment for women continues to fall.
4: Yeah, that's right. You know, if you're impressed by the the four uh, percent nationwide rate, the uh, the 3.7 percent unemployment rate for for women is really quite extraordinary. Uh, it's it's the lowest in almost 50 years as, as well. It's declined uh, quite sharply over the, the past year. It's being driven by really strong jobs growth in jobs that traditionally have a lot of women working in them. So things such as healthcare, aged care, retail, accommodation and food services, jobs that attract a lot of uh, female candidates have performed really strongly over the past 12 months, and that's what's driving the unemployment rate for for women um, so low.
2: Well, what's interesting, though, too, is uh, what impact will this have on wages? I mean, their expectation is that wages will pick up, and, uh, but we haven't yet seen that.
4: What's your view about that? Yeah, I, I feel like a bit of a broken record on this, um, and I think most economists would feel the same, in that we, we expect uh, this very tight labour market to begin to uh, spill over into higher wage growth. Um, as the labour market gets tighter, uh, we would expect stronger wage competition across employers, And as they try to attract more candidates for the jobs that they're advertising, as well as retaining their existing staff, and that should contribute to higher wage growth and ultimately inflation. Now, that hasn't occurred at all yet. Uh, wage growth is up by 2.3% over the year, which is roughly what it was before the pandemic began. If we cast our mind back to the last time the unemployment rate was at 4%, which was just before the uh, GFC, the uh, wage growth was up around 4%. So it's a a very different environment in in terms of wages. The next six to 12 months is going to be really interesting on on the wage front. You know, we haven't seen a labour market this tightening in a long time. If that doesn't translate into higher wages, then a lot of economists, a lot of policymakers are going to have to have a a bit of a rethink about how we think about the economy and and these labour market and wage dynamics. Like I said, I do anticipate that wage growth will begin to pick up. So this is a question of how high it's going to go. It's hard to believe that we can have a labour market this tight with so many jobs available, so many jobs vacant, and that not translating to higher wage growth.
2: Well, related to that is the forces of inflation, Mr Judy. Uh, CPI figures coming out soon and, uh, you know, what kind of
4: inflation are we expecting? Well, we're expecting inflation to pick up further. Um, What we've seen overseas is very high inflation rates. You know, 6s, seven, seven, eight 8% range uh, for for countries such as the United States. We we don't necessarily anticipate that uh, Australian inflation will get that high, but but it's certainly going to head higher than it has been, which is in sort of the 3.5% range. Don't be surprised if annual inflation is over 4% when the March figures come out, potentially even as, as high as 5%. And that data's out on the 27th of April, just prior to the May RBA board meeting. So if inflation comes in really hot, and we do get a 4 or 5% inflation rate, that could very well be what pushes the Reserve Bank over the line in terms of their decision to hike rates. The RBA is expected to, to hike at least several times over the second half of this year, but a really hot inflation figure would potentially bring that forward to, to May. So that'll be one to keep an eye on.
2: Uh, that will come uh, just a few weeks before the election?
4: Yeah, that's right. You know, The federal government would be hoping that the RBA holds off until at least June.
0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
4: Until the election's out of the way, but it, it's certainly possible that the RBA's hand might be forced. You know, there, there's a threshold for the level of inflation they're willing to tolerate, and if it gets over that 4%, uh, level you know up towards five percent, I think that's beyond the level that the RBA will be willing to tolerate, and that would force them to to hike rates.
2: So how many rate hikes are we expecting for the year ahead and into two thousand twenty three well
4: that, that's a very good question. I mean, if you ask market participants, they're expecting you know rates to rise to potentially two, maybe even higher. Uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, Economists are a little bit more conservative around that. I I think, you know, realistically at the moment, my expectations would be for at least three rate hikes this year, up to 0.75%. But this is, you know, a very fluid situation, particularly given, um, you know, the inflation reads that we are seeing overseas and the likelihood that Australia does continue to import that high-end inflation back home. If we consistently see inflation of four or five, maybe even higher, then the Reserve Bank's probably going to have to be a little bit more aggressive than most uh, economists expect. And if that was the case, then maybe those market expectations that we're seeing might actually come true.
2: So we could see rate hikes into 2023
4: and maybe beyond? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't expect the RBA to be done this year if they begin to, to hike rates. I think this higher inflationary environment is something that's going to stick with us throughout um, 2023. And you know, the, the likelihood that wage growth picks up as well is something that becomes uh, more realistic next year as well. So that's going to contribute to inflationary pressures and, and also put pressure on the Reserve Bank to continue hiking rates.
2: Well, it's interesting because uh, in the US, their, uh, their unemployment has fallen and uh, their wage rates have have increased
4: massively. Yeah, that's right. You know, their dynamics are a little bit different to us. Um, We haven't seen the the wage increase thus far. The US have. Um, Their wages do seem to be a little bit more sensitive to declines in the unemployment rate um, compared to to us. So that could be quite interesting um, to follow over the the year ahead. Obviously, they've got much higher inflation than we do, and that's forced the the Federal Bank to take a more aggressive stance uh, regarding monetary policy.
2: Well, it'll be fascinating to watch, Callum, and thank you very much for your time.
4: And thank you, Leon.
2: So what's happening in the news? Well, Russia is ambling towards a major default on its foreign debt, a grim milestone that has not been seen since the Bolshevik Revolution more than a century ago, and one that raises the prospect of years of legal wrangling and a global hunt by bondholders for Russian assets. The looming default is the result of sanctions that have immobilised about half of Russia's US $640 billion of foreign currency reserves, straining the country's ability to make bond repayments in the currency in which the debt was issued, US dollars. Girding for a default, Russia has already preemptively dismissed it as an artificial result of sanctions imposed by the United States and its allies, and it has threatened to contest such an outcome in court. The coming fight which would probably pit Russia against big investors from around the world, raises murky questions over who gets to decide if a nation has actually defaulted, in the rare case where sanctions have curbed a country's ability to pay its debt. Russia does not appear likely to take the declaration of default lightly. If that should occur, it would raise Russia's cost of borrowing for years to come and effectively lock it out of international capital markets, weighing on an economy that is already expected to contract sharply this year. It would also be a stain on the economic stewardship of President Vladimir Putin that would underscore the costs that Russia is incurring from its invasion of Ukraine. At stake for Russia, which has already suffered the abrupt rupture of decades of crucial business ties with the US, Europe and other nations, is one of the underpinnings of economic growth, the ability to smoothly borrow money from outside its borders. Since Russia's predicament is so unusual, it remains something of an open question, who is the ultimate arbiter of a sovereign debt default? And Federal Reserve Bank President of St. Louis, President James Bullard, said the central bank needs to move quickly to raise interest rates to around 3.5% this year with multiple half-point hikes and that it shouldn't rule out rate increases of 75 basis points. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that a 50 basis point increase is possible at the Fed's May 3rd 4th meeting. Comments by colleagues since then have hardened expectations they'll make that move as officials extend a hawkish pivot to curb the hottest inflation since 1981. And the International Monetary Fund and World Bank have cut their global growth forecasts because of the war in Ukraine. The IMF warned that Russia's invasion could lead to the fragmentation of the world economy into rival blocs. In a half-yearly update, the IMF said prospects have worsened significantly in the past three months as it reduced for 2022 from 4.4% to 3.6%. The World Bank cut its forecast for global economic expansion this year on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and is planning to mobilise a funding package bigger than the COVID-19 response for nations to deal with various resulting and ongoing crises. The Washington-based institution has lowered its estimates for global growth in 2022 to 3.2% from a January prediction of 4.1%. And Twitter shares gained after the social media company launched a so-called poison pill defence to thwart an unsolicited bid by Elon Musk to take the company private at US $54.20 a share. A securities filing on Monday, or Tuesday, Australian Standard Time, confirmed the defence strategy Twitter outlined last week, which would allow the company to issue new stock that all shareholders except Musk would be able to buy at a discounted price. It imposes a significant penalty on any person or entity that would acquire more than 50% of the company without board approval, according to the filing. Musk currently owns just over 9% of Twitter shares. The board adopted the rights agreement to protect stockholders from coercive or otherwise unfair takeover tactics, according to the filing. Twitter is using the poison pill defence in order to buy time to come up with a plan that would be in the best interests of its shareholders. The company has also been fielding takeover interests from other parties, including technology-focused private equity firm Thomas Bravo. Meanwhile, Musk may try to partner with Oracle, given that its co-founder Larry Ellison is on Tesla's board, and that Oracle has previously shown interest in taking a stake in TikTok, another popular social media company, according to Bloomberg Intelligence Analysts. In a tweet on Monday, Musk, who is also Chief Executive Officer of Tesla, said if his Twitter bid succeeds, board members would not be given a salary. Tesla pays its own directors an annual cash retainer of US $20,000 plus certain additional fees, but they also receive stock option grants every few years, meaning they stand to make tens of millions of dollars or more with Tesla's stock price gains. In Australia, the major parties have made almost $400 million in funding promises and allocations for dozens of local projects in a guerrilla grassroots campaign in just the first week on the hustings. Despite heavy criticism of Prime Minister Scott Morrison over Pork Barrelin, tracking of candidate promises made on social media channels but not accompanied by official press releases, shows the Coalition and Labor have been unbowed with a series of under-the-radar commitments across 25 seats. Since the election was called on April the 10th, The government has announced at least $110 million in subterranean promises. Labor has made $130 million in similar commitments, but this number swells to $276 million when quickly matched commitments for government announcements are included. These pledges range from as little as $45,000 to repair a local cenotaph in the Tasmanian seat of Lyons, announced by the PM himself, through to $107.5 million from the opposition, matching a government commitment to bolster Cairns' water supply. In one example... Labor attempted to play spoiler and announced it would spend $40 million to upgrade roads in the key marginal seat of Gilmore, hours after Mr Morrison launched his re-election campaign with the same commitment in the electorate. And the Morrison government will double the fines that can be levied against militant construction unions and individuals, drawing a sharp contrast with Labour's promise to abolish the construction industry watchdog if elected at the May 21st poll. Scott Morrison plans to double the maximum fines courts can impose under the Building and Construction Industry Act. The new maximum fines would be four hundred forty four thousand dollars for a union and eighty eight thousand eight hundred dollars for individuals convicted of serious deliberate and repeated breaches of a law in the construction industry such offenses would include freedom of association unlawful picketing unlawful industrial action and coercion and market economists have strengthened their expectations the reserve bank will hike its cash rate in june following the release of board minutes that conceded higher inflation and wages are brought forward the likely timing for a cut ANZ Head of Australian Economics David Planck said the case for a rate hike in June rather than May was reinforced by minutes of the Bank's April 5th board meeting. The Reserve Bank says an expected jump in underlying inflation and looming wage pressures have brought forward the likely timing of the first increase in interest rates. In the minutes of the RBA's April 5th board meeting published on Tuesday, the central bank said that for some time the board had been communicating that it wanted to see evidence that inflation is sustainably within the 2-3% target range before increasing interest rates. After its board meeting a fortnight ago, the RBA removed the word patient from its statement on the monetary policy decision, marking a key change in the central bank's forward guidance on its 0.1% cash rate. The March quarter consumer price index will be published on April 27th, with CBA economists expecting the headline inflation rate to rise from December's 3.5% to 4.3%. And aged care workers across the country have voted to take industrial action over acute staff shortages and continuing low rates of pay and the union says the mood for strike action prior to the election is very strong. The United Workers' Union says members at five aged care providers, collectively employing 7,000 workers, have voted overwhelmingly to take industrial action, with three more ballots due in the next week. Workers at major providers Blue Care and Southern Cross Care have joined Anglicare, Hall and Prior, and Churches of Christ to endorse industrial action, including strikes, ceasing paperwork, speaking to the media and clients' families, and wearing badges. UWU Aged Care Director Carolyn Smith says the ballot results have weighed clearly in favour of industrial action. Most votes 90% or above in support of action. One smaller provider... Voted 100% in favor. And the nation's major food and grocery manufacturers say they're facing increases in costs of up to 700% since the pandemic began, led by surges in shipping and freight prices, the cost of warehouse space, a sustained shortage of transport pallets, and keeping workplaces COVID safe, and have warned some of that will flow through the price shoppers pay at the checkout. The cost of implementing COVID safety requirements of sourcing ingredients, the global shortage of wooden pallets used to ship finished goods and skyrocketing freight costs are all playing into food and inflation across the supermarket aisle. It comes at a time when inflation is surging across Australia and in many countries overseas as the cost of everyday items that typically fill a shopping basket rises and squeezes household budgets. Australian Food and Grocery Council Chief Executive Tanya Barton said food and grocery manufacturers were facing Rising cost pressures, and many had absorbed these, their own businesses. However, these costs would eventually have to be passed on. And uncleared toilet tanks on planes, and no worker immediately on hand to pump out the waste. Broken seats, lost luggage, two-hour, three-hour, four-hour delays. These are not the woes of a budget airline. Rather, this is a situation for customers of Australia's premier airline, Qantas, as people flock back to airports amid a post-COVID travel surge on the Easter weekend. Qantas faced severe criticism from its customers after hundreds of thousands of Australians arrived at airports around the country only to face significant delays, cancelled flights and a type of disorganisation that is usually associated with unforeseen weather or political events, not the Easter holidays. Qantas was even forced to send SMS messages to its pilots in fear they would not be able to start three international flights. Qantas CEO Alan Joyce defended the delays, saying it was because of star shortages due to COVID and customers not being match fit for travel. And the Labour Party has spent nearly forty five percent more than the coalition on advertising on Facebook and Instagram, as the opposition seeks to avoid a repeat of a two thousand nineteen election, when its defeat was partly blamed on a failure to use digital advertising to speak to voters directly. Labour has accounted for fifty point four percent or two hundred and seventy eight thousand dollars of political ad spent on Facebook and Instagram, compared with the coalition's twenty seven point nine four percent or one hundred and fifty six thousand, according to data dawn from Metas At Library. The library contains data on spending on Meta's social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, and was analysed by the University of Queensland. Since the budget was handed down on March 29, Labor has on average spent $14,631 a day on advertising on Facebook and Instagram, compared with the Coalition's $8,210 a day. Independents are spending an average of $2,740 a day on Facebook and Instagram, while the Greens are spending an average of $1,123 a day, and the United Australia Party is spending $861 on average a day. University of Queensland Political Science Senior Lecturer, Glenn Kefford, said Labor's high spin on Facebook and Instagram came out of its internal review into why it lost the 2019 election. This pointed to the party's digital campaign as lacking, noting it had been used to amplify the content of other aspects of a campaign rather than speaking to voters directly. And News Corp, Australia's finalising plans to launch a bookmaking outfit this year in partnership with a consortium linked to gambling entrepreneur Matthew Tripp and has picked the former boss of BetEasy to serve as chief executive. Rupert Murdoch, news and media giant, has been working on a local wagering strategy for more than a year, which has involved negotiating with several potential wagering industry joint venture partners. That search is now finished, according to several well-placed sources, who said News Corp had settled on an equity partnership with a group of investors associated with Australian online waging pioneer Matt Tripp and the Las Vegas-based online gambling investment fund, Tet The launch of a new bookmaker, with the backing of News Corp's enormous media reach, is set to shake up Australia's wagering industry, which has consolidated in recent years. Major digital players, Sportsbet and BetEasy, merged in 2019, while the ASX-listed incumbent Tabcorp has continued to lose market share to online rivals. Trip is one of Australia's most successful bookmakers, having built Sportsbet into the country's second-largest bookie behind the TAB, and then establishing BetEasy in 2014, before selling it to Canadian gambling giant The Stars Group, and Big Four consultancy Deloitte is suing one of its directors for allegedly claiming at least $3 million in sham work expenses from the firm and clients to fund his lavish lifestyle in an elaborate and long-funding fraudulent scheme. According to documents filed with the Federal Court, former restructuring director Paul Quill made thousands of fraudulent expense claims from 2016 to 2022 to buy at least 100 artworks and sculptures, designer furniture, luxury clothes and watches, and a hot tub. The case prompted Chief Executive Adam Powick to write to partners last week, warning them that integrity was one of our core leadership values at Deloitte and the firm had zero tolerance for any conduct breaching this. According to Deloitte's submissions, Mr Quill claimed work expenses from Deloitte for transactions made on his work credit card, which were in reality personal costs, including the purchase of fine art and luxury goods. He then allegedly submitted sham invoices to the firm by manipulating genuine invoices from third-party suppliers to look like they were for work-related expenses, backing some up with fake emails claiming to be from a Deloitte partner. Vendors listed in Mr. Quill's 2,600 claims worth 3.4 million from March 2016 to February 2022, of which Deloitte said just $300,000 were legitimate, included art dealers, galleries, Mieli, and Louis Vuitton. These included a $30,900 payment to Sullivan Strump Fine Art and twenty six thousand and thirty four thousand dollars to a PayPal account, which were all claimed as search and filing fees. Just this year, Mr. Quill was allegedly reimbursed $29,000 paid to a mystery recipient named SNS, despite not allocating any expense category to his claim. And ExxonMobil plans to develop a major carbon capture and storage project offshore on Victoria's Gippsland Basement, The latest push by the oil and gas industry to boost its green credentials. The US Energy Giant is undertaking early engineering and design studies for a potential facility that can capture two million tonnes a year of carbon dioxide with startup expected in 2025. The scheme would use existing infrastructure to store carbon in the depleted Brinkfield off the coast of Victoria's Gippsland Basin, where Exxon already owns and operates a string of major oil and gas projects. Exxon said it was in discussions with local industries in accessing the tub known as the Southeast. Australian Carbon Capture and Storage Facility. The potential carbon capture hub adds to the gradual momentum from industry in backing the technology, which has suffered from high costs and problems scaling projects to a sufficient level to make a dent in high emissions from the oil and gas sector. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Matt Keon, the CEO of Genius. He's building the most complete genomic map of the body to deliver faster and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of neurodegenerative diseases in weeks, not years, and is fueling the next generation of pharmaceutical discovery for neurodegenerative diseases through partnerships with universities in Australia and abroad. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Eslake about the big economic issues in the Australian election. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week.